Oh, I'm very excited to, to give you guys this message today. Um, this is something that God has been um, kind of overwhelming me with lately. It's, it's a topic that's come out in, I think, every area that I've been um, teaching lately. And uh, I'm just really excited to share it with you guys. Um, I, I'm also getting a cold, and so uh, any gross noises that you happen are not part of the message. So just ignore those. You don't need to include those in your notes. Um, go ahead and open up to Isaiah 55. Um, and Terry, I might get a little louder as I get into it, so you can turn me down a little bit. So we, um, This is an exciting, exciting thing. Um, and while you're turning there, I'm going to give you guys a little background on Isaiah. Uh, really, really broad strokes here, but um, Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. He was the prophet to Judah, and, um, and the, uh, I guess the thus says the Lord about Isaiah was that um, Judah was, um, was, has succumbed to idolatry and empty worship practices, um, things that they were doing, but the heart and the love for God was absent. Uh, and so um, along with the prophecy of coming disaster as a result of that, which was the Babylonian captivity, um, Isaiah has a lot to say about the Messiah as well, which is only appropriate when people are dealing with hearts that are far from God. Um, some people have called Isaiah 53 the first gospel as it deals so, um, so specifically with the, the work and person of Jesus. Um, but we're going to be in Isaiah 55 today. Let me read that for us, and, then, uh, and then, then we'll pray. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it, accomplishes, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Let's pray. Lord God, you've got something for us today because we are opening up your word. I pray our hearts are open and, uh, and that your spirit moves us and that we don't resist what, you're, what you may be whispering us to, uh, whispering us to do today. Um, affect our hearts, God. Your word is wonderful. And, uh, and I pray you don't let one of my words escape my mouth, but every word chosen by you. For these folks, God, and for me, bless us with your word. Amen. So let's talk through this in three parts, because um, that's the classic homiletic, right? 
Uh, we're going to first start with the first five verses of 55. And it starts with, and this part I've labeled God's promises. And, uh, and it's just so, so beautiful to get this picture um, of, uh, of God providing all we need out of his kindness. Um, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Um, we, can't, we can't buy it. We can't earn it. We can't create it ourselves. We are just blessed by the kindness of God. And, uh, uh, but verse two, 2a two comes with a, a question. This question um, highlights the lie that people have believed since Eve first believed the snake in the Garden of Eden that something other than God can satisfy. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? That's um, already been a theme of some of these songs we sang this morning of the satisfaction we have in Jesus and how only he can, he can do this out of his kindness. And what's the answer to that? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. And I love that. It's not just, not just a promise of basic sustenance. It is a delight in rich food. And then it goes on to say, uh, to include that we are the beneficiaries of a covenant made uh, that came through David. It was a covenant God made to Abraham that he was going to send a redeemer through his line. And it went through King David. And from a descendant of King David, we got Jesus. And we are the beneficiaries of that. It says, incline your ear and hear. Incline your ear and, and hear. And uh, let me read it for you. Hang on. Um, <clears throat> and come to me here that your soul may live. What other message do we have that can cause our soul to live besides the gospel? Those who run to the Lord have that hope of glory, like it says in, at the end of verse 5. God's promises, because of his kindness, he has promised this satisfaction. Not just satisfaction, not just life, but life abundantly the richness of rich food that we do not have to buy, that he has given to us, promised to us thousands of years ago and kept faithfully through the descendants of Abraham and David. The next section is a call to repentance, verses 6 through 9. And it starts with, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. There will be a time when it will be too late. Every knee will bow before God and have to give an account. And by then, our name will be in the book or our name will not be in the book. And he will either say, come on in, or I don't know you. There's going to be a time when it is too, when it is too late. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, For he says, in a favorable time I have listened to you, and, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And, uh, and that, actually, that message is actually coming to you right now. We don't know what's going to happen in the next five minutes. That time is the present, because we have no guarantee of the future. And that is, called with a, um, that is paired with a call to repent, forsaking our ways and thoughts. And repent, just as a reminder, is an about face, a military term, to march in the other direction. It's not just uh, adding God to our life of sin. It is turning from our sin and turning towards God, is forsaking our ways. And why do we need to forsake our ways? Because they are not God's ways. Why do we need to forsake our thoughts? Because they are not God's thoughts. That's the problem. That's why we need his, uh, his, his salvation. And I love this too. How far above us are they? They are as far as heavens, the heavens are above earth. 
And that, we're not talking about atmosphere here. We're not talking about solar system heavens. We're talking about presence of God heavens. We're talking about an eternal divide, that infinite divide that only Jesus can bring us across. It's that, that infinite divide between sin and righteousness, life and death. It's, uh, it's this, this unreachable um, destination, this unfathomable chasm between us. That is how far above us his ways and thoughts are. It's, it's beyond us to reach that. It's beyond us to understand that. But through the kindness of God, this call to repentance comes with a promise here. It comes with a promise here of abundant pardon. Abundant pardon. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon for his thoughts are not your thoughts. It is his highness that pardons us, that allows him to pardon us. If he were not so big and so mighty, he would not be able to do this. And it's amazing that he can. And then finally, the next section is satisfaction in him. And I love, love how clear God's sovereignty comes through in this. In this next section, 10 10 through 13, the rain comes down, brings forth and sprouts, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. And it's not just that his word accomplishes something. It's very, very specific. His word accomplishes that for which he sent it. It's not just that it'll do something, anything. Um, It might do something. Something good might come out of it. Um, Throwing a mixed bag of seeds and seeing what comes up. That's not what God is talking about here. God is ultimately very successful, 100% successful about what he tries to do with his word, about his, with his, his presence and his glory. He accomplishes what he sets out to do. He is in full control. And because he is in full control, nothing can undo what God has done. This passage talks about God's word causing joy and peace and singing and clapping, life growing where there were just thorns and how it can never be cut off. And I think the best part about this is it is for his glory and his purposes and his power. If we didn't earn it, we can't unearn it. And I want you to note something here that's very, very important, that our salvation that it's talking about here, that the restoration of, of the land uh, because of the fruitfulness of God's word, that is for, our salvation is for God's glory first and foremost. It is so we can be in a relationship with him to glorify him again, the way we were made to before sin separated us and broke that relationship. It is a uh, wonderful, wonderful passage for the huge scope of God's goodness pertaining to salvation. Contains ultimate satisfaction in him, abundant pardon for our sin, security of salvation in his promises, and uh, an overwhelming impression of his glory and his goodness. And it's that which I want to focus the rest of our time on. And uh, now that I'm looking at the rest of my notes and looking at the time, we might end a little early. I hope that's all right with you guys. Kind of blasted through that first section. I'm sure nobody will uh, begrudge me that. Uh, <laughs> but we're going to spend the, the rest of our time talking about God's goodness. And I think this verse highlights a lot of that. But I want to I round out God, uh, the topic of God's goodness. Not exhaustively, that's impossible, um, because his ways and thoughts are higher than ours above, as far as the heavens are above the earth. But 
I do think the, the topic of God's goodness gets a two-dimensional treatment most of the time. And let's get into that. Um, first, God's goodness is a part of his nature, not a description of his choices. It's very important to understand that God is good. It's not just that God does good, which is true, but God is good. God is preeminent and eternal, coming before everything, above everything. And what that means is our definition of goodness, what we call good as human people, you can give something to a child and they'll taste it and say, hmm, that's good, without without really having a fullness of understanding of good because our, we, we get a glimpse of goodness being made in the image of God, but we, it's tainted because of sin. It's marred because of sin. It's broken because of sin. But that, that, that shadow of goodness is not a human idea. We get it because, again, because we've been made in the image of God. Goodness is, um, it's like, uh, it's like uh, for those of you who, are, who ever took a philosophy class, we're going to talk about Plato's cave for a second here. God is is like the sun shining into a cave. We see shadows and light on the wall of the cave, but we can't turn around and stare into the sun. We can just see the shadows and impression of God's goodness on the wall of the cave. We see it very, very dimly. His ways and thoughts are so far above ours, we can't stare into the sun safely, just like we can't understand and grasp God and his goodness. And so we have this imperfect reflection. Um, and because we have time, I'm going to tell a funny story about my kids. <clears throat> We've been working on our diet at home, and I'm sure we're the only ones um, that have to fix the way we eat sometimes. One of the things we've, we've committed to is staying away from high fructose corn syrup and, um, and some artificial colors. And as some of you guys are like, hey, that's fine. It's just us. Don't worry about it. I don't judge you for eating it. Uh, so we've been teaching our kids about these things, and when they ask, why can't I eat that? That looks really good. It's like, no, that... Those apple rings are, it's just like, it's just sugar and dye. We don't want you to eat any of that. There's nothing in that that you can eat, I don't think. But it looks so good. Yeah, well, yeah, it looks so good. But it's not good for you. Well, then why do they make it? Is it going to make me fat? Well, that's not the worry, kid. <laughs> but, uh, but this concept of good is very clear when teaching our kids about what we put in our body. Um, there's, that, there's that kind of murky shadow, that wispy concept of good when you eat something and it tastes nice, but it might not nourish or satisfy the way something truly good can. And then there's kale, <laughs> which is what rabbits eat when they're on a diet. Um, and it is not good to taste, but apparently very good for you. Uh, and, that's, uh, and we'll get to that side of this topic of God's goodness in just a sec. But that vague sense of goodness, that, that apple ring looks really good <laughs> in, the, in, in the candy store, um, is what we're talking about. We just have that murkiness, um, that, just that shadow, that shadow. But he alone satisfies, he alone redeems and renews, he alone is the source of goodness, and anything that is truly good is only good... Um, as it gives him glory and is made by him and is not tainted by sin and um, accomplishes his purpose, which we know is always successful, which is awesome. Let's consider Job for a second here. Job went through a lot and God had to really thump him 
with a reminder about how far above Job God is. He had to really thump him with a reminder of his goodness. That the good that Job may judge on the surface is just a shadow. It's just a glimpse. Job, uh, the first, first couple chapters of Job we're pretty familiar with. He suffers. Job is a righteous man who loves God and God uh, is up in heaven. Satan comes to him and says, uh, God says, look at, look at Job. Man, that guy loves me. And Satan's like, not if you made him poor. God's like, go for it. So Satan made him poor. Took away everything he had. And Job praised the Lord. God's like, look at my servant Job. He loves me. And Satan's like, not if you take away his health. And God said, go for it, but don't kill him. So Satan did it. And Job praised the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Over months of this suffering, though, he weakened. And he complained to God. We see, we see parts of this, this conversation in chapters 23, 24, um, cross-reference with 13. And I'm going to paraphrase some of this for you. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him never see his days? He's looking at this shadow, this murky, hazy thing and, and judging it as good or bad and brings it to God in this complaint. Let's spend some time talking about God's response. I'm going to read a big, big chunk of scripture here because I want you to feel a part of what Job felt here. So go ahead and open up to Job 38. When God answers Job out of the whirlwind, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Ouch. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I make clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and, and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and from the uplifted arm, and the, their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep or have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this, where is the way to the dwelling of light where, and where is the place of darkness that you may take its territory and that you may discern the path to its home? You know, for you were born then the, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of snow or have you seen the storehouses of hail which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is and on the, on the desert in which there is no man to satisfy the waste and desolate land and make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew and whose womb did the ice come forth and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. 
Can you bind the chains of the Pallades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that flood over the water, uh, that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say, say to you, here we are? Or who has, who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of heavens? And when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together, can you hunt prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when the young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food and God is just getting started with Job? <sighs> Overwhelming the highness of God. Overwhelming the glory of God in his goodness. Think about all he does to provide for the earth that requires him to be higher than us than the heavens are the earth. Goodness is part of his nature. <clears throat> Goodness also goes hand in hand with his glory. Turning back to Isaiah 55, in verse 13, all of this shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off, shall make a name for the Lord. His removing of thorns and briars for his glory we are saved by his goodness for his glory. And let's look again at someone else who, uh, who encountered God and his highness. Um, I'm going to go to Exodus 33. I'm going to read a couple verses. Um, you can turn there if you'd like to while I take a sip, but I'll read it. <clears throat> Exodus 33, 18 through 20. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I, will, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Again, there's the name of the Lord that all glory is going to. But also it seems that God equates his goodness with his glory. It's almost like he uses them interchangeably. I'll make my goodness pass before you, but you can't see my full glory. Which is a very interesting point. Moses was not allowed to see his Face, that fullness of God's glory. He wouldn't be able to understand it and he wouldn't be able to survive it. What then do we learn about God's goodness? His goodness is as far above us as his glory is. We cannot turn around and stare into the sun. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is good, and we only see a murky shadow of what is good. <clears throat> fear of the Lord, that fear of being blasted by the glory of God is a wonderful thing because He is high above us. But for those who have been redeemed, it is saving. It is protecting his ways and thoughts being so far above us is a comfort. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord. Again, the name of the Lord that all this is for the glory of is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. So as we, as we keep talking about the controversial goodness of God, don't be discouraged that it's challenging. It is comforting because this highness, this strength, this unapproachability is what keeps us safe and secure. 
And so it causes life in us when we were just dry bones before. The promise of the gospel culminates in our glorification. That time when we are able to see God face to face without dying. And what a wonderful hope that is. We can see his full glory without being blasted like Moses had to fear here. We don't, we don't just have to hide in a corner and see like the tail end of part of his goodness pass by. We can be with him face to face forever. What a wonderful hope that is. We don't have to be afraid of, afraid of being blasted by God. We should be afraid of not hiding in him. We should be afraid of not running to him and being protected by his goodness and grace, right? We should be afraid of that more than anything, of what it would be like to be apart from God or, or to go ahead of him or to the side of him instead of right inside that strong tower, the name of the Lord, to which all of this is for the glory of. The name of the Lord is our everlasting sign that we shall not be cut off. The name of the Lord Notice in verse 13, that word LORD is in all caps. That is a Bible hint to you that this is not just boss, but God. When the translators would get to that word, they would have to wash themselves. They'd stop, wash themselves, then write the name. Or right after, I can never remember which is which. But they washed themselves out of respect for this word, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the name of the Lord secures us and promises glorification in the future because he is our strong tower. Finally, fully trusting in God requires us to forsake our ways and thoughts regarding what we call good. Again, we're talking about goodness, not just his glory, his nature and salvation, but specifically his goodness. And this is the most challenging section of this. But let's, let's start off, right? Let's talk about Job again. Because Job really, uh, God really thumped Job for his complaining and forgetting exactly who God is. And Job gets the message. Praise the Lord, right? Job 42, 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Had I heard of you by the hearing of, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Hopefully, you know the end of that story of Job is that God blessed him with more than he had in the beginning before the testing took place. He isn't left low in the dust and the ashes, but his, fully, his seeing, not fully, his, his seeing more clearly how high God is above him leads him to repentance, leads him to that forsaking of his ways, like it says here in, uh, in chapter 55 of Isaiah. He responds to the vastness of God in the only way that someone should, which is, I am a ruined man. Isaiah encountered that. He was in the temple the year Uzziah died when he was called out to be a prophet, and God filled the temple with like smoke, and it shook the whole thing. And he saw God and fell down on his face and said, Woe to me, I'm a ruined man. I'm a man of unclean lips. That's the only response to seeing even a portion of God's glory. And again, we don't ever see the fullness of God's glory. What Isaiah saw was just a fraction, was just a safe, moderated dose. The only response to that 
is forsaking our ways and turning to him because his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. Uh, his thoughts are, yeah. Um, and he is as high above us as the heavens are the earth. You cannot accept his salvation and reject his de- definition of good. They're together. We have to re- forsake all our ways and turn to him. Repentance is not a partial turn. It is a about face. Forsake your ways. Don't keep your favorites. You can't turn to God and kind of half sidestep towards him and repent. That's not repentance. That's laziness and salvation. Um, Trusting God means believing he is good without trying to evade his plan or bypass his will. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. That is pretty clear. Nice, fun, sweet situations make it easy for us to trust in a part of God's goodness. We get that, that fun side of it. Salvation makes that easy. His kindness is what leads us to repentance. Those promises of satisfaction are so wonderful, palatable. But if it were all palatable, we wouldn't have a problem evangelizing, would we? I'd be like walking around saying, here's cake. Here's gluten-free cake. Here's dairy-free cake. Here's everything-free cake. <clears throat> but his goodness has has more dimensions to it. Has more dimensions to it. Because when events that conflict with our ideas of goodness happen, we want to reject it and say it's bad. We want to look at the shadow and, and say we know exactly what's going on behind us. Foolishness. You can't look into the sun. We have a murky view. How do we get to know goodness? We get to know God. We're quick to reject certain things as bad, but everything God chooses to do is good because God is good. Rain and snow come from heaven and bring forth life. Bring forth life. In Matthew, Jesus said it rains on the just and the unjust alike. Romans 8.28 tells us something similar, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul knew. Paul knew. What, that he, what he was talking about there. When he uses the word good, he's using the word good the way he should use the word good. Not being for our monetary success, our fleshly gain. He's talking about for the glory of God only. Let's talk about the life of Paul real quick. Paul knew this aspect of God's goodness, the controversial, sharp-edged God, um, goodness of God. He was a bright man from a good family, even though he wasn't born in Italy. He was a Roman citizen. He was an up-and-comer in the temple. He was, he was on path to make partner. He was given special duties. Everybody knew this name. He was the rising star in the temple. And he was going off on a special assignment. He'd been assigned a task force to go take this radical justice of his, his idea of good, to Damascus. And God stopped him, blinded him, and ruined his life. He took away his life's ambition. He couldn't go back to his friends, his work. He took away his sight for a while. What he did to Paul, Paul looks back on his life and says, all of that gain I had is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. God ruined Paul's life, and that was good. That was good. We see the story, we see the story of Joseph his brothers were jealous, and he wasn't doing anything to help it. But they, they, they sold him into slavery. He, he was falsely accused and falsely imprisoned for trying to do the right thing. 
He was forgotten in jail when somebody who got out said, I'll remember you. But God did all that to do something wonderful, to preserve a remnant of the people of Israel through which we get the gospel. Good. Good. Moses stood up for a slave who was being beaten and was shunned for it. I mean, he did commit murder, but... So I see that. He hid in the desert, leaving the palace of Egypt, hid in the desert, and was called by God to free his people, through which we got the gospel. Good! And Jesus, falsely executed, beaten to within an inch of his life, bled out and died for us to save us from our sins. We can't look at something with our own wisdom and say, this is good, this is bad, because we don't define that. We can't comprehend that. We can't judge that for ourselves apart from what we learn about God and his nature and his purposes from the word of God. And we see that here. It's for his glory. Our good comes second to his glory. You're saved for his glory. Paul talks again in Romans talking to this church of believers. Also, I want to point out, this is a rabbit trail side note. I get to do that because I'm ahead of schedule. Paul wrote the book of Romans to a believing church, and Romans is the most thorough, um, systematic explanation of the gospel in the Bible. I just want to remind you, preaching the gospel to yourself and to other Christians is so essential to remembering day to day why we live, why we have breath in our lungs. Praying for the church this morning is a great... Reminder of, of that is we are to constantly be preaching the gospel, constantly be looking out. And when you remember the gospel more in your life, when the gospel's on the tip of your tongue and the front of your mind, it'll come out more in conversation. You always know what someone loves when you talk to them. Talk to someone for five minutes, like, wow, that guy loves the Seahawks. That guy loves Star Trek. You know, that, guy, that guy really loves this, really loves that. You can tell because it comes out. How wonderful would it be? Gospel and filling your heart, tip of your tongue, front of your mind. That's what comes out. That only comes by meditating on it, loving it, remembering it. It's, it's an active choice to keep it in the front of your mind and the tip of your tongue. Paul wrote this gospel to the church in Rome. And he wrote this in chapter 5, verses three, and five, 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Those things that the world would label bad are good as God defines them because they bring Him glory. And therefore, the good of the sanctification of those going through them Don't label something that is good, bad, just because it's uncomfortable. Another example of this should be familiar. Luke 21, verses 12 and 13. Matt preached on this recently. The verses say, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. That is good. That is good. When we live for the glory of God, our comfort, safety, our 
fleshly pleasures, our plans, wills, desires take a back seat. We don't get to call things bad or good apart from what God reveals in His Word and what God purposes for His glory. The depths of our sin reveal the height of His grace that is good. Our foolishness highlights His wisdom that is good. Our weakness makes us needy for His strength that is good. It's not comfortable. It requires forsaking your ways, dying to yourself. Picking up your cross is not an uplifting thing. It can, we've, we've lost the tang, the, the, uh, the, the, the sting of what the cross really represents. They made Jesus walk through the city carrying his cross so that all could see this is a condemned man. They did it to embarrass him and humiliate him. They didn't make the other guys do that because they especially wanted Jesus to be humiliated. When it says pick up our cross, we are to humiliate ourselves to glorify God. There's no better purpose. There's nothing else that satisfies. Not doing that would be chasing something that doesn't satisfy, spending our money on stuff that's not bread. Remember, it's for His glory that you are saved and freed so you can worship Him and sing His praises. We don't get to heaven and sing our praises. Nonsense. The Bible even says the crowns we get with the jewels that we get for, for uh, performing services for God and living for Him, we throw at His feet. There's, nobody wants to keep their crowns when you're in the presence of God. Nobody wants to stand up when you're in the presence of God. They fall down as if they were dead saying, I am just done for. God spoke to Job out of a whirlwind, and Job is, I am dust and ashes. But he doesn't leave us there. Yes, God's ways and thoughts are not ours and higher above us than we could possibly comprehend, but only he satisfies and only he is good, and he promises wonderful things to those who turn to him and submit his ways. There is only one way to get that glorification, that face-to-face relationship with God, living with him for eternity, and that is forsaking our ways and taking up our cross humiliating ourselves to be made whole with God, dying to ourselves to have true life. If you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, only then will you save it. There's a challenge here. If you find your heart unsatisfied with how God is leading your life, you are denying yourself the experience of His goodness. If you find your heart unsatisfied with how God is leading your life, you are denying yourself the experience of His goodness. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. It is as tough as... Um, Coming to salvation it requires the death. It requires a forsaking of us in our ways. But there's so much more. It's rich food. It's not just bland protein cubes that basically sustain us. It is rich food, freely given, promise of glorification, satisfaction, and joy. Again, he came not to just give us life, but give us abundant life. Taste and see that the Lord is good 
Blessed is the man that takes refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for being so high above us, able to save and secure us. I pray, Father God, that as we get to know you, that we will see more of true goodness, that we won't hang on to these challenging things, that uh, we won't hang on to a view that challenging things are bad, but that we'll be so wrapped up in loving you that we're just excited for the next thing that you have for our lives, that we're so in love with you that we're, we're just anxious for more of you, whether that's comfortable or difficult, whether that's um, this way or that way, whether that's rich or poor, healthy, sick, whatever that may be, God. Do with, do with us as you will. Accomplish your purposes in us, God. And I pray we stick tight to you. We run to you as our strong tower. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your promises. And thank you for being a God that is so high above us that we have assurance of faith just based on your promises and your nature. We love you, God. Amen. Amen.